Thank you so much for joining us. You are listening to another episode of We Do Music, the podcast that connects us to inspiring leaders in the music industry. I'm your host, Meg Porter, and this week we sat down with R&B artist, writer, and producer, Miss China Fox. Join us as we talk with China about her passion for music production, the best way to build an online following, her unique journey with health and fitness, and how she's embraced being a queer woman and a boss in the studio that everyone wants to work with. I'm so inspired by her confidence, work ethic, and her commitment to creating and sharing her authentic voice with the world. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only China Fox. So take us back to the beginning. I want to hear about your upbringing. I know that you traveled and moved around a lot, and I'm just, I really want to dive into what makes you you and how this all began for you. Sure. Um, I didn't really grow up in any one place. I moved around a lot. My dad was in the army and then just switched jobs, so I don't have a hometown really. Mm. Um, most of my, most of my living like areas were within the Midwest, the South. And then <clears throat> when I was 14, my family moved to Cozumel, Mexico. We drove down through Oklahoma, Texas, all the way down around the Yucatan Peninsula. And uh, that's kind of like when, well, right before that, my dad had been in the church as a music director for a few years. Mm-hmm. So I had been doing, uh, you know, little like special songs with him and kind of like learning how to perform in front of people. And I was 12 years old the first time I performed in front of anyone. And then uh, when I was in Mexico, you know, we're all a musical family pretty much. And so we would write songs and like, you know, just kind of mess around. And it it didn't really become a serious thing until until I was probably 13 or 14. Uh, And that's when we started doing actual live shows like at different resorts and, uh, you know, clubs, bars, things like that, which is kind of crazy to do at like 14 years old. So you did Uh, that with your family, like together uh, or no? It was me and my brother. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. He, he plays guitar. Um, and I play piano, but usually he would play and I would sing. Um, yeah, Yeah. it's like, it's funny because I, I didn't at the time, you know, it's like when you're, when you're a kid, you don't, you don't really think about stuff. It's just like, Oh, this is normal. Right. (laughs) Um, but yeah, I, uh, thinking about it now, I'm like, wow, I was so young. And then we moved back to the States when I was 15. The timeline is a little bit blurry because there were a lot of moving back and forth and, and, uh, you know, family issues and stuff like that. But I went to public school in Arkansas. So the whole time up until this point, I had been homeschooled. So that was about seven or eight years. And then I auditioned for a choir when I got into high school and I made, uh, sophomore select which is like the the I guess highest tier choir at the at my high school at the time um that you could get into which was which was kind of cool because I'd never I'd never taken lessons I had never done any sort of like music theory classes I'd never done privates or anything like that it was literally all just playing by ear singing by ear Mm. being self-taught um and my parents always had they always had music in the house um like all the time. And so, you know, my roots are Motown, soul, uh, R&B, hip hop, you know, mostly black artists. When I was 16, we went into the recording studio and that was my first kind of exposure to that behind the scenes world of making music. And I just fell in love. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I remember we went to this place called East Hall Recording Studios, and it's in Arkansas, um, about an hour south of where I went to high school. And it was like this shed. On, on the outside, it looked like this really drabby <laughs> shed. Like, I was like, why are, are we, like, is this the right place? <laughs> um, and the, the guy that owns it, his name's Chris, he came outside, met us. It was just me and my brother, and we had booked studio time, like, online, sight unseen. Wow. Like a mail-order bride. <laughs> and we walk in, and I was like, oh, my God. There were just these, like, vintage organs and Rickenbacker guitars and basses and a whole, mm. like, he had a bunch of different uh, uh, pieces for drum sets that you could just kind of like put together your own custom set. He had the control. It was just like a main room, a vocal booth and a control room. Mm-hmm. And I just remember like being fascinated with the process of creating music digitally. I was like, what is this? You know, being in the studio is a whole different beast. And so we started working out of a recording studio. I was 16. My brother was 17. And we just did, I think we did like, uh, he had these packages, like you can record a demo for this much or three demos for this much. And I think we ended up doing three demos. It was so much fun. We just had a blast. And so then we decided to to keep working with him and we recorded our first album there. We actually, it's kind of crazy. Like we used to sell out shows in high school. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was. I'm like, how did we even book those gigs? Because (laughs) I was like, I was so young, but I think my brother would get in touch with the venues or Mm -hmm. people for the venues. He was like kind of a G. I like (laughs) didn't know anything about the logistics of booking a gig because he would cover all of it. Wow. And people really liked it. We we ended up opening for some pretty big, uh, not local bands, but but bands that were famous within the area. Then I kind of realized like music production, engineering, like all of that type of stuff was just my 100% my wheelhouse. And so I uh, wanted to go to, to college for music, but I didn't really know where because most places that have music are choral or classical or jazz. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of not interested in any of those things. Um, I got into Juilliard. And I got into NYU, but I was like, I don't really find myself. I just couldn't picture myself there, you know? Yeah. They're kind of no offense to anyone who's going to, you know, listen to this and say I went there. But to me, they were starchy. I was Mm -hmm. just kind of like, I need something a little bit more like, (laughs) for lack of a better term, I was like, I need something more like hodgepodge. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I need something that's just kind of like, you know, a little bit less formal and like put together. Yeah. So then I heard about five weeks from a drummer that I had played with. And so I didn't really know anything about Berkeley. I just knew he went and he really liked it. And it was more of a kind of contemporary vibe. So I was like, cool, let me just kind of do some research and then see if I can audition. And so I auditioned like on the very last leg. Uh, I flew up to Boston with my dad and my brother. I auditioned and then I got in. And then, uh, yeah, it was kind of history from there. Yeah, I've always wondered where your love for music production kind of started. And it sounds like that it was sparked from that initial early experience and exposure that you had working with your brother in that studio. What was really cool about, you know, working with him is like, music has always just been something that has been a part of our lives, Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of crazy, because most siblings don't have the same interests. Right. Um, We a 1000% do. And so getting to kind of like see into 
um, his process of songwriting and cause he was actually the more musical, uh, the more musically inclined one out of the two of us for a very long time. And I was always kind of envious because he wrote songs and I didn't, I would just do like backgrounds and harmonies and I would, you know, help him with like keyboard parts or whatever, but I wasn't, I didn't consider myself like a songwriter. Mm. Um, it was always him. And then things kind of flipped over over time, which has been really interesting to see. I guess flash forward to today or recently, um, let's talk about like current life as a songwriter producer. So I know that you recently released Chocolate, your latest song. And I feel like you're you're someone who's always like in and out of the studio working on songs. And I'd love to hear just about writing and releasing Chocolate and just kind of your present day being in the studio environment and constantly working on creative things. Sure. Um, so chocolate was created, uh, this same time last year and we basically it was, it was not planned at all. That song was kind of on a whim. Basically my friend, Alex Sipsimos at Berkeley, um, long story short, we met, uh, at the burn when they first started having like student led shows. Um, we were some of the first people to be part of that program. And so, I signed up for it. I didn't know who my co-host was going to be. And we got like, we got like the crack of dawn slot. It was like 8 a.m. on a Friday. And it was just the two of us just like, you know, being us fooling around. And like, we're like two people are probably going to listen to this ever in time. But that's how we met. And so he's from Thailand. And he came over to L.A. with his main producer, Tim, who's from Amsterdam. And then um, another really, really amazingly talented producer uh who actually played the guitar line on chocolate um his name's richard and he's from london so they all three were here just kind of like they had some sessions planned but they were mostly just kind of like bopping around la um you know meeting people and so he invited me to the house they were staying at in silver lake and we were just hanging out we had dinner and they actually had been working on another song for like nine hours straight so they were pretty tired in the back of my head i was like this group of people probably won't be together again for a long time. Hmm. So I was like, do you guys want to make a song? And they were like, we're tired, but yeah, let's do it. (laughs) And so we referenced um, a Kyle Dion song and Richard and Tim probably made the track within like an hour. Tim is a super, he always says he doesn't play an instrument. He plays the computer (laughs) um, because he's really fast at Ableton. So Mm -hmm. they were able to kind of like put the track together and Alex and I were writing at the same time. So we were writing at first it was going to be a duet because he's a singer. He's a really um, amazing singer. His name is Sips S Y P S on Spotify. um, And he has some music out. And so we were like, let's just, use both of our voices. And then it ended up with the lyrical content and everything. He was like, I don't think that I can sing this song because we were writing it. um, Basically we were writing it about uh, black women, Mm -hmm. like my, my affinity for them and the, the uh, symbolism of, of, you know, the word chocolate. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, his girlfriend is, is Thai. And so he was like, you know, he's like, I, I don't think that I can, I'd be able to, you know, do this in confidence. And I was like, cool, I'll sing it. So yeah, that's, that's uh, how we started. And then I cut the vocals that you hear now around 4am. And I didn't think that they would be the final ones, but they ended up just being, you know, just sounding good. Like the energy was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, cool, that works. And there was never any need 
to recut the vocals. So, uh, so then I brought that song to Tyler Scott, who's my main mix engineer and he really liked it. And so he mixed it. And then I had Jet Galindo at the bakery do the mastering. And then it, here we are a year later and it's wow. been out for, um, about a month or two now. Yeah. Did I see that you did, did you do some kind of release party or something for it? Yeah, that was, uh, the end of June. I, I had a deal with Hotel Roosevelt. Um, they have like little private theaters that are meant for like magic shows. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to work out a deal with this this startup company that I have partnered with as well um, to have one of the theaters for a night. And they kind of just let me do whatever I wanted to do. So that was the release party. It was really cool. It was very intimate. There were like maybe 50, 60 people there um, and they have seating and like a bar in the back and you know it's just like a really cute vibe it was perfect for what I needed in the past you know we've seen people do album release parties and EP release parties but I think it's so cool that more and more artists are now releasing singles and they're taking the time to have a single release party or gig you know some kind of moment that creates buzz but also gives gives a chance for their team and themselves to really honor and celebrate that release like I think that's so cool and and it reflects really the evolution of music now yeah definitely and and I think you know unfortunately people just don't listen to full albums anymore Mm -hmm. unless you know you're like Beyonce or just a bigger artist it's just the the way that the the movement of music has been singles lately Mm -hmm. and I'm not gonna put together a whole album you know if if I can put if I could put all of my effort into one really, really, really amazing song, I'm going to do that instead of, yeah. you know, spreading my effort 20 percent across eight to 10 different songs. I just don't see the value in that anymore. Walk us through your day to day as a writer. You know, are you working with other people? Are you writing by yourself a lot? Are you in the studio? What does that all look like for you? Yeah, I kind of am doing both. I am in the studio, I would say four days a week, mm-hmm. sometimes more, depending on what I'm doing, because I do. I do write for sync projects, like I'm working on one for Red Bull right now. I can share this information, but I can't share too much. Sure. I um, am singing on a new Nickelodeon show. And that's been nice because I can do it remotely. Like I have a setup where I live. And so it's pretty convenient because they'll just send me the brief and then I, I cut the vocal and, you know, it's done. And then I so I kind of do a little bit of both. I do the writing with different producers or writers that's kind of from scratch just to see what we can come up with. And then I do like rounds or camps where I'm writing for a specific artist or, or hoping to pitch to specific artists. And then I do the sync writing thing, Mm -hmm. which is normally by myself. I've also been doing some commissioned work for, um, the Barbie company, Mattel. Yeah. That's an amazing company to work for. That's incredible. Yeah. They, they pay invoices on time. That's all I care about. (laughs) Do you find that a lot of the opportunities and gigs that you get are relationship based? Like, do you spend a lot of time networking or are you getting, you know, referrals? Are you are you taking time to go pitch to different companies and and different things? Or what does that all look like for you? I'm trying to kind of gauge for people that want to get into what you're doing. What kind of things would you recommend in that way? I would say that the music industry, like any industry, is 90 percent relationships. Yeah. Yeah. you know, it's like I can send an email cold to a company or I could go to one of their events 
and actually network with people and get, Mm -hmm. you know, show them my face and get to know them and crack some jokes. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, I just, I think that people appreciate when you appreciate them. So showing, you know, making an effort to go out to things and, and not being afraid to, you know, it doesn't need to be like this starchy, like bring your business cards, like just be you and like get people to notice that you are a good person and you're reliable and you are a person of your word. Because I think, especially in LA, 90% of the job is just showing up mm-hmm. and doing what you say you're going to do. Right. Um, and a lot of people find that difficult for some reason. There's a lot of flakiness that I've found here. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's, it's, I'm not shading anything or anyone, but it's more so like if you can be on time or even early and, sh- and show up and show up for yourself and, you know, follow through with what you say you're going to do, you're always going to get called back. So I think that to be honest, that's been the only reason for the success that I've had is getting to take the time out of my day to actually either meet people in person or, you know, follow through, like call them or text them and make sure that they remember, Hey, I'm still here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm down to work. I'm, I'm ready to go. Like you let me know, let's schedule something just right. actually following through and not saying, Oh, we should work together. Like that's such a, like, it's such I don't know a thing like, to say. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It's, it's like a pet peeve of mine when, when mm. somebody, it's like saying like, let's jam or like, don't, don't say that to mm. me. Like if, if you're actually planning on saying it, Cause I'll, I'll call people out. I'll say, okay, when, like get my calendar out and be like, when do you want to do it? Just because it's like, if, if you're actually going to say something, follow through with it because I'm a person of my word Mm -hmm. and I always, you know, try, I at least try to do what I say I'm going to do just because that always comes back around. You know what I mean? And, and people, people remember that if you show up or if you don't, and if you don't show up, they forget you. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not really, I don't have the luxury to not show up places. I Mm -hmm. I don't have financial help from anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I don't have anybody kind of holding me accountable except for myself really. And so if I can't hold myself accountable, then what am I doing? So helpful to hear people need to like have that perspective. And you know, something that you posted recently really stood out to me. You mentioned, I think it was actually one of your promo clips for chocolate. You said, like, I'm here to stop being afraid of what's on the other side, and I'm here to stop being afraid of using my voice or finding success and overvaluing other people's opinions. Like, that just stood out to me so much, and I know it resonates for me, and I'm sure it's resonating with so many people. I'd love to just hear your take on that and kind of where that comes from and what that means to you, that whole that whole thing you posted. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I appreciate you, like, kind of keeping in touch and like keeping your finger on the pulse of what I'm doing. Yes, <laughs> it, of course. I think that we forget because, you know, social media can be such a like enigmatic thing that mm-hmm. you forget there are real people on the other side of the screen, mm-hmm. you know, watching mm-hmm. and paying attention. But yeah. So I think that I realized how much fear had been motivating my decisions to not do things and not only fear, but self doubt and insecurity and complexes. And, you know, when I realized that it sounds so simple, but it's like, it's like you get to decide every single day what you do or don't do. And so you get to, you have to answer to yourself if, you know, you never set any goals or if you never write anything down, you can't be disappointed with yourself years later when you've never actually accomplished anything. And I think that success is a mindset. It's not something you can teach. 
It's not something that somebody can convince you of. You either have it, you develop it for yourself and you refine it or you don't. And I also realized that, you know, the self-doubt and the uh, self-deprecation or whatever you feel as as a creative and artistic person, that's always going to be there. The The questioning is that's part of what makes such a beautiful, you know, like we're beautiful and we're broken at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what makes what we do so important. Um, but it's like if you're given a gift, whether it's writing, singing, producing, whatever it is, whether it's music or not, it's like it's a gift. So something else gave it to you. And to keep it inside or to keep it, you know, on a hard drive or in your in your bedroom and that's all you do, like that's to me that's super selfish because it was given to me, so why would I not share it? Right. And it's selfish to say, oh, well, you know, there will always be a million reasons not to do something. But if you can find the reason to do something, and if that reason is just dedication to self, then, you know, you're you're way better off than most people. Because, you know, I, I heard this song last year, last summer, and there was a little, like, snippet of dialogue. And the guy is talking about pouring out your creative cup. What he means by that is like, you know, as creative people, we're always going to have new ideas. We're always going to be progressing and developing and creating new things. And so, you know, don't get caught up on these three 12 year old songs that you keep trying to remake or that you keep trying to release. It's like, let that go. And I don't say fear in a negative way. It's more so just like, that's the uh, the spark that I have in me. That's why I'm constantly in the studio or working with people or always showing up or, you know, doing these shows and trying because right. I don't want to get to the end of my life and wonder or or bully myself and say, you never did this. You never did that. Like I would much rather fall flat on my face than never try because of my own pride or ego or insecurity or whatever the case is. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. I know that no, real it's, dark, real no, 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 it's so, I mean, that's real, that's real talk. It reminds me of, uh, I think it's Tony Robbins. I don't know if you're familiar with his work, but um, mm-hmm. he... You're the pilot of your own life. Yes, exactly. And he says, I believe he says that the fe- the antidote to fear is action. And so it sounds yeah. like what you've done is you, once you were like aware of the fear and had the self-awareness, you then could just be like, you know what? I'm going to tune that out and I'm going to move forward and I'm going to go play those shows and I'm going to use my voice in this way and I'm going to create and put things out and stop like, you know, almost like tuning out the, the noise around you. Yeah, exactly. Because it's like those, the, the, like I said, the doubt is always going to be there forever. Right. You're always going to have that voice in the back of your head that says, hey, maybe you're not good enough or mm-hmm. maybe you know, maybe there are people that are better than you. And that's Mm -hmm. like, I'll be the first one to say, yeah, there are lots of people that are better than me. But what they aren't is me, you know, what I can do and what I bring to the table are things that the more that I work on this, the more I understand what my strengths are and what my weaknesses are. And when I have weaknesses, I can delegate those things to people that are strong in them. And you know, the things that I'm weaker at. And that's why this past week in New York was so amazing because I flew Tim out from London to New York and I flew to New York. And so it was me, Tim and David. And we were just kind of like tag teaming each song. Like, you know, Tim doesn't play an instrument. David plays every instrument under the sun, but he doesn't write lyrics and he doesn't sing. And I do. So it was like, it was so cool. The perfect because perfect match. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, there was, I, I have never had that kind of like energy or I guess 
to sound corny like it was it was like magic it was mm-hmm. um you compliment never, each other yeah yeah it was like you know each of us would spend like an hour or two on it and then kind of tag the next person in like I don't have anything on this like mm-hmm. help me you know or or they would make the track and while they're making it I'm writing and so when they're kind of at a stopping point with the track they would leave and get, grab lunch or whatever and I would be writing I was kind of like a mad woman because I'm single now so like I can be a workaholic <laughs> um but I was like working till like three or four in the morning you know on these songs and not for any other reason but just showing up for myself mm-hmm. and you know it was it was amazing because they had never met before they had never ever worked together before and it was kind of just like hey like how's it going you know what I mean how was your flight <laughs> all right let's make music like <laughs> it was kind of wow. like speed dating a little bit but like right. it's a different chem- it's like finding chemistry That's so yeah funny. but it was like speed dating that actually ends well (laughs) if that ever happens Mm -hmm. um but like you know understanding uh and refining my strengths and my weaknesses was vital to that to those moments and if Mm -hmm. I hadn't been in the studio working on these things and and writing you know there was pretty much last year I was writing a new song almost every day wow and recording myself almost every day. And because of that, I was refining like the, um, like I'm a beast in the studio. Like <laughs> I've, maybe I can I'm not feel it. Person, I can feel it. But like, I know, you know, I'm like, it's like my, my edges are razor sharp in the studio and mm. I know exactly. Um, it's almost like I know every corner of my voice at this point, like the mm-hmm. textures and the layers and what I can pull off and what I, what I know, you know, people, it's funny, like, I, I had some sessions at a Black's studio, if you've mm-hmm. heard of him, mm-hmm. Six Black. Yep. Um, and I was cutting some vocals, and his engineer was there. And uh, I did, like, a couple takes, and I was like, man, that was sloppy. And he was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm no, like, I know I can do it better. Right, because you, know? you know you, you know your voice, you know that you, you know, you have a different standard than someone who probably is getting to know your voice for the first time. Exactly, and right. it's not about... I'm not a perfectionist. I think Mm. that um, a lot of creative people put that on themselves, but I think it's less perfection and it's more um, having a specific vision of what it is that you know you successfully pull off. What about, let's talk about building an online following. What goes into this part for you? Like, is there, is there a lot of strategy that goes behind creating awareness of, of who you are in your music and even just creating content or having a team in place like yeah what kind of goes into it for you I do have a a team it's small but to be honest I I was talking with somebody about this a couple days ago and I think that because because music is not this tangible thing people think of it they they don't think of it as a product Mm. um they don't think of themselves if they're a music producer artist or whatever they don't really think of themselves as the product or the business and I think of it the opposite um, because I'm a business person before anything else. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to create content or brand yourself or whatever, you have to know what, what your values are, mm-hmm. the the why and the intention behind it. Because let's say you post a video of you singing or whatever, and that's great, but it's like, why? What's the point if you're just doing it to do it? Like, are you trying to elicit an emotion? Because if you can tap into uh, bringing out specific emotions in people, then your your money. One artist that I can really um, 
use as a perfect example is Billie Eilish. You know, she's she's 100 percent herself, which is great. But at the same time in her music, she has a very specific persona, which is like kind of crazy because in person she's not, you know, she's silly. She's a clown, (laughs) but her music is very serious. And so that's the main thing that I think I always try to follow through with is like or fall in line with is is like, does this post or does this content or whatever it is, does it line up with my values as a human? Like the music, to be honest, talent and music are maybe 20% of having success as an artist. And I know that that's probably disheartening for some people to hear, but it's true. Like people don't show up and, you know, buy a shirt or dress like Billie Eilish with the blonde and neon green pigtails because they like her songs like yeah that's part of it but it's the feeling that she gives them right it's the feeling that the persona gives them even if it's not who billy is behind closed doors as a per as a person but as a brand Mm -hmm. that's what it is and so you know some my advice if i can give it is for anyone who's trying to build an online following or trying to figure out like how do i brand myself or how do i come across you know in a certain way figure out what your what your core values are. You know, what are what are the core characteristics of your brand or your whatever it is that you're trying to do. It doesn't have to be in music. Like is it, you know, is it a fitness brand? Okay, cool. That's very vague. Is it fitness for women? Okay, that's more specific. Is it women of color? Great. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Is it bright? Is it dark? Is it, you know, you have to kind of like really dive into those things, which is like the unsexy part mm-hmm. of branding yourself and building a following but it is the part that's so important because it's I kind of associate it with like religion or why people go to church it's like their values line up with the uh the basis of certain religions so Mm. it's like if you can create that religion for yourself in a way like what are the things that make you you and then that helps with not coming across as inauthentic or fabricated. Right. And I think that that's what people connect with at the end of the day. Like, I totally hear what you're saying. It goes beyond the music. You know, what can they connect with and relate to that is true and unique about yourself? And then how can you make sure that that's brought out and represented in all that you do, all that you create, and everything that you put out in the world? And I see it as like, you know, if you take a look at the people you're closest to, to in your life and in terms of like friends, Mm -hmm. like exclude family from it. Just think about, let's say your closest five to 10 friends. All of those people have something within them uh, characteristically or maybe even physical that is a reflection of you. There's a reason why you resonate with them. And Mm -hmm. so if you think about your brand and your artistry in that way, you can build kind of like a fan persona and, and create like, you know, I'm a person of color. I'm queer. I'm openly queer. Like I'm, you know, I'm definitely more on the feminine side. And so I want to appeal to other people who find those things interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone's going to agree with that. But that's the thing is like, the biggest problem I see is that they want to appeal to every single person or they want to be mainstream. And it's like, if you try to appeal to everyone, you're going to appeal to no one. And so, you know, I would rather have, let's say, 20 to 30,000 fans within a certain area of the country than try to appeal to the masses because it's just not realistic and it's not uh, it's not intentional. And so with with branding and figure out who you are and figure out what you want to be to other people, you know, ask yourself, does 
that thing for other people bring value to them. Totally. Yeah. Bringing value to others. Ultimately, that's what we're doing, you know, whether it's entertainment or knowledge or whatever. I feel like it comes down to those kind of two things. You're bringing an entertainment in some form or you're bringing knowledge where they're being educated. A lot of artists that I see fizzle out or they stall Mm -hmm. because from the beginning they were in it for themselves as like either option A, they were in it for themselves or option B, they were never authentically themselves. And when you're not 100% yourself or you don't know how to portray that, you're always going to, the truth will always come out. You know, as as an artist like yourself who writes, sings, produces, like has her hand in many different things, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts or experiences or any challenges, you know, as a female in the industry. I know that that, just for our female listeners that want to do what you do or or just want to have want to like pursue their path somewhere in the music industry I am going to be honest I think that I am kind of at a different place being uh being queer the first challenge when you walk into a studio as a woman is making sure everyone knows you're not someone's girlfriend so that's kind of the first thing and it's not like a rigid like strict way that I am it's more so I carry myself with a specific energy yeah um when I walk into a setting and, and I've never really had, I mean, obviously as a woman, yeah, I've had people say things or try things, but specifically in music, I think that being able to carry yourself and, and command respect is all in like the little things, you know, I'm realizing, for example, like not, don't apologize, stop apologizing when you don't Mm -hmm. need to, Mm -hmm. because those are like little things that create an inferiority complex within you that enables other people to see you in the same way. Um, Another thing is like, I don't move out of people's way if I don't have to. Yeah, I think that that also causes, uh, it creates more of like, it's almost like you're uh, maintaining power. Mm-hmm. Um, because I see a lot of women do it. Like they immediately move out of someone's way and men don't do that. It's like, okay, well, if we're talking equality, then I shouldn't have to either. And it's a very small thing, but it's little things like that. Or, you know, I don't treat anybody differently, male or female. Mm-hmm. And I think to be honest, because I am a woman, I've been given more, uh, opportunities. So it's more of like an advantage cause you're standing out in a way. Yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm standing out and I, you know, people can tell that I'm smart and that, you know, I know what I'm talking about. And especially Mm -hmm. when, when you say you're queer, people immediately uh, label you as gay. You know, it's, I'm like, okay, cool. If you think that I'm not looking for what you have, then that's great for me because we can actually get to making something happen and you're not wasting your time trying to flirt with me. Mm -hmm. Cause I, I had the same kind of like, uh, sentiment at first as a lot of women, like, oh, well, I, I would only look at like the negative or like he's talking to me that way because I'm a woman, blah, blah, Mm -hmm. blah. And it's like, you can look at it that way, but what are you doing? What can you control that's um, allowing him to talk to you that way? Yes. Gosh, it sounds so simple, but I love how you broke that down. You know, these things of how you carry yourself and the language that you use and how you physically stand, the energy that you bring. I mean, these are such powerful ways and tools to hold your own in a studio when you're working with men. It's not that I'm not friendly, um, Mm -hmm. you know, but like, for example, I had I had a meeting with um, this old industry head. He's like he worked for Interscope for a really long time and he kept calling me sweetie and he kept calling me honey and all this stuff. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't I'm not somebody who takes that with, you know, aggression and makes it upset me because the only person who gets consumed by hatred or anger is the person who feels it. So it was him, me and then my mentor 
And he kept calling me that and, you know, just using like those little things. And I was like, hey, um, just so you know, I was like, you don't you don't really need to like say all that stuff. And he was like, what, what do you mean? And I was like, you don't need to call me anything that you wouldn't call him. And he 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 was like, oh, he like wow. he really had a moment of like realization. And I was like, yeah, it's it's just not necessary. Like, I appreciate the sentiment. Right. I know that you're trying. I know it's coming from a place of like you're trying to be kind to me. But I was like, you can be kind without calling me sweetie or honey right. or babe or those things. Like, I don't need that. I'm right. you know, I'm good. I love that you did that and stood up for yourself. And I just think of how many women, you know, after you that that will benefit from from you standing up in that moment and kind of letting him know. It's a really small thing, but I think that women have a lot more control um, in terms of what they, uh, the type of respect that they should know they deserve and the way that they carry themselves and choose to speak. And like, you don't have to be, you don't have to pay extra attention to somebody just because they're a man. You don't have to move out of the way just because they're a man or, you know what I mean? Like you don't have to look at somebody differently because they're a woman or a man. Like it's right. take people at face value and, and take people for what it is that they give you in terms of like the way that they talk and things like that. And if somebody needs to be educated and you, and you're in the mood, like you can educate <laughs> take them. The moment. But, yeah. Right. But if, if it's kind of like a lost cause, then it's like, well, what are, what can you control? Do you feel like you need to be in that situation? And mm-hmm. if you don't, then leave. Like nobody's, nobody right. forces me to go to these sessions. You, you know what I mean? You get to choose who you work with as well. Right. And I think because you know, I've been blessed because I have a really great relationship with my brother and with my dad. So, you know, I don't, I don't look at men a certain way. Like there have obviously been situations I've been in where I felt uncomfortable or whatever it is. And that's as a woman, that will always be the case. But I don't put those situations and those circumstances and those feelings on every single man that I meet, because I think it's unfair. And I think that you know, I, I give everybody a chance until they give me a reason not to. And I found, you know, it is a blessing to like, let, let them know, like, yeah, I actually am attracted to women. Mm-hmm. Even if I am still attracted to men, I'm not going to let them know that. But it just kind of like wipes clean the slate and there's no sort of like weird tension or energy. Um, and if there is, I squash it. Women have the opportunity every day with every every circumstance like that, that makes them uncomfortable to take back that power and say, Hey, actually, I'm not comfortable with that. And if it's a self-respecting man who actually has dignity and like respect for you, they'll, they'll either apologize or concede the point and understand where you're coming from. And if not, then that's their true color. And you know that you don't need to be working with them. So to wrap things up, I'd love to talk about health and fitness, which I think is so important for every human being, but especially those who work in the music and creative field. I know that we've had conversations about this in the past and it's become such a big part of your life and mine. So I'd love to hear more about this journey for you and how you like to take care of yourself. You know, all of that. Yeah, I think that um, especially in music or things that are creative, sometimes we allow ourselves to get consumed by them um, in an unhealthy way. And it's like this work, 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 work. And like, yeah, I do have a lot of work ethic and I'm definitely you know, somebody who, who, um, will go above and beyond, but I also know my physical limits and I don't compromise on those. And so, uh, basically while, while I was at Berkeley, I was very unhealthy. I just, I didn't eat very well if ever. And, you know, I was always working, I was sleep deprived as we all were. And like, just didn't, I didn't consider the fact that my body is a vessel and it's the thing moving me from point A to point B Mm -hmm. at all times. Um, 
and I never, you know, I never really uh, respected it because my mom uh, is a personal trainer and was growing up. So she would always buy like organic stuff and like healthier stuff. And so I took that for granted as a kid. I was like, I want chips. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I want to drink soda, but it was, it was always like you drink water and we eat like fruit and vegetables. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, because I was actually diagnosed with asthma when I was like five and it was really, it was like pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Um, so my mom put me on this huge like detox diet where I didn't have like carbs or processed sugars and it helped me a lot. I, I didn't have to use an inhaler, thank God. And I didn't have to, um, you know, go through these crazy treatments that I know some people have. And it's because of the food that I was eating. And so after Berkeley, I, I kind of went into like this crazy depression for like four or five months and I just wasn't eating right. I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't working out. I literally wasn't doing anything right. <laughs> you know, I kind of realized I need to, I need a change of pace. And so in 2015, I uh, moved to, I moved back down to Cancun where my dad lives. I had a really good support system with my dad and my stepmom because they're both very fitness heavy uh, people. And we all kind of just like held each other accountable. I started doing CrossFit five days a week at 5.30 in the morning. Wow. So that's a drastic change from what you were used to. But it wasn't even like, um, I'm a very uh, disciplined person. So if I decide I'm going to do something or not do something, it's not, there's not this like weaning process for me. Right. It's either I don't like I can quit things cold turkey. Like I can quit carbs cold turkey and I don't really think about it so much. Wow. Basically we put ourselves on this like no carb, no sugar diet. I think they did it for two weeks. And then after those two weeks, I just kept doing it. Like I just didn't find myself craving sugars and I didn't find myself craving carbs and, and, uh, things like that. And so, uh, I, I felt better, you know, I just felt more clear. I had more energy and I, I lost probably over 30 pounds in a year. It was just, you know, having that discipline of showing Mm -hmm. up for class and, and learning. And I, I loved it. I loved that the whole, you know, people give CrossFit a a bad rep and like talk about it because there have been a lot of injuries. But if you have the right coaches, you know, you can work on your technique and your form and stuff. And I loved seeing the, the strength that I was building. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved feeling strong. I loved feeling like, you know, I could climb ropes and I can lift. I, I was deadlifting like 250, you know, I'm, I'm nowhere near that strong now, but you know, just that was the start of it. And then I kept going uh, with eating right. And, uh, my palate changed actually. Um, and that's really helpful. And so this is like, what year is it? This would be year four of my actual fitness journey. I guess I'm, I'm on paper vegan, but I don't like to label myself that way because Mm -hmm. I still do eat meat sometimes or I'll eat like butter or whatever. Um, and for me, it's more so like, having the self-control and being able to modify portions or just like allowing yourself to be disciplined enough to go without something mm-hmm. so that you know how you feel with it. You know, dairy, for example, it's not something I need. It's not something anybody needs really. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've had people argue with me. Um, at this point, I don't really like, I don't really um, offer my opinion on, sure. I've, I've done a ton and ton and ton of research on food as I'm sure you have as well. Yeah. Um, but I don't, offer that because people get really weird and defensive. So it's just kind of like, I control what I do with my body. Mm -hmm. And what works uh, for you? What feels right for you? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think it's like people say like, oh, I can never live without cheese or I can never live without that. And I'm like, actually, you could. Uh, <laughs> you know what's funny? I, I literally said that like to myself when I first uh, became knowledgeable and was doing my own research. This was like a year and a half ago, right when I got here and was at my worst health wise. And I remember reading these chapters of what I needed to cut out. And I thought I shut the book and I was like, there's no way I can do this. Like, it's just not going to happen. I was thinking of what my mom cooks in this household, the things that I buy. And I was like, there's no way. And then slowly but surely, I was like, well, why don't I just cut out? I'm going to cut out dairy for the next two weeks and see how I feel. Wow, I feel great. I'm not even craving it. Okay, then I'm going to cut out this and this. And it was just this evolution over time. But I think people get overwhelmed. I think they get overwhelmed, but I think it's also uh, they it's it's the direction in which they're choosing to think about it choose like saying oh i'm cutting this and i'm cutting that out basically you're saying that you're forcing yourself to be without something and that goes against human instinct so when you can alter the way you think about it instead of like oh i'm going without this or i'm going without that it's more so i'm gonna see how i feel Mm -hmm. when i don't eat this there are little things that i say little ways that i say things to myself that alter the negative or positive connotation and makes it more um, just neutral. Like it's just a fact. You know, I know that dairy is not good for me because I've gone without it long enough to understand how I feel mm-hmm. when I don't have it. And then when I do have it, it's like it's like when you've gone without something and then you have it again, the effect is so much more drastic and you can just pinpoint it so hard. Right. You know, now that I've kind of lived without certain like meats or certain um items of like dairy or sugar or whatever you kind of just realize that there's no sort of universal diet that works for everybody like you can't not everybody can be vegan not everybody can be this or that so it's more Mm -hmm. so like learning your own body and learning like what works for you and what doesn't like look at your plate and look how many are there colors on your plate not dyes like actual colors that's an indication to me of like how how much nutrients you're actually getting you know we put the right oil and gas in our car but we don't put the right things in our body like Mm -hmm. what what is that gosh it's so true what we put in our bodies what we put on our bodies how we talk to ourselves you know all of it matters all of it impacts how we feel physically emotionally it's so true and it's like you don't like people I know some people that I'm like you don't get to have another body why are you acting like you do wow Ugh. you know my body is the one thing that I have at the end of the day mm-hmm. without material things without any person like your body is all that you have man I'm so inspired by this conversation thank you so much for being a part of this for sharing your journey with us I'm just I'm so inspired by you and grateful so thank you so much yeah absolutely I think that you're doing some amazing things and I can't wait to see how everything kind of like evolves and yeah. you know if I can help in any way definitely let me know Chocolate so sweet, babe. Ooh, 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 ooh. And if 